the way I kind of always picture anxiety is just being swept down a river. My feelings and my emotions, my worries, they're just carrying me down the river mm. and just getting absolutely mauled by my own feelings. You know, if you're watching a movie like a horror film or something like that and it's slowly building mm. and you're watching the character move through the scene and then the culmination of that set piece, you know, like the big moment of confronting the monster or the murderer or whatever it is and that mm. violence that comes at the end of that set piece mm. is like the panic attack. That's how I would think about it. Yeah, violence is probably a good word for it. Because the interesting thing about the movie analogy is that our relationship to the movie is that we're an audience member watching it unfold. Oh yeah, that's a really good point. That's how it feels sometimes. Like mm. I'm watching myself mm. get moved downriver yeah. and I'm helpless to do anything to stop it. Welcome to Are You Mental? A podcast about mental health. My name is Mick Andrews, and I'm a filmmaker by trade, but I recently studied counselling and developed a strong interest in mental health. And one thing I've noticed is that even though we're talking about mental health more these days, which is obviously great, if you're like me, you're still a little bit unclear on what each mental health struggle is and, and what it's actually like to experience. Now, not many of us have the time to read up on all of this stuff, so I'm making this podcast so you can come and find out about the different mental health struggles in a really engaging and hopefully mildly entertaining way. And my hope is that deepening our understanding of these mental health struggles will give us more empathy for the people in our lives who experience these things, whether that be someone else or actually ourselves. So this week, we're talking about anxiety. What is anxiety? How does it function? What might cause it? What's it like to experience? And what might we do to start managing our anxiety? Well, these are the exact questions we're about to dive into. And to help me do that, I'm speaking to a psychologist and two people who have struggled with anxiety. So let's get on with it. The first voice you heard belongs to a good friend of mine, Michael. He struggled with anxiety all his life, and he's really good at describing his journey. A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of luring him down into a dark basement, attaching a microphone to him, and talking to him all about it. Welcome to the uh, dungeon. Thanks. What do you think? It's more like the grungeon. <laughs> good. The grungeon. You just named this place. Why don't you tell us a couple of things about yourself? Okay. I'm in my 30s. 32. Just, yeah. Yeah. Got two kids. Two pretty rad boys. Two really cool boys, yeah, four year old and two year old. Um, How would you describe your youngest boy's godfather? Oh, he's alright. Just alright? Yeah, he's not too bad. Hopefully, he's just like in the wings, ready to like step in at some point. <laughs> to actually do To up. actually do something <laughs> as a godfather. Um, recently separated from my long term partner, slash wife. Oh yeah, wife, ex, well, well, I mean, yeah, she, she was my wife. When did you first experience what you would now call anxiety? I didn't really realise that I had anxiety until it fully just took over, I guess. The, the moment it really, really hit home and was a big problem was when I got made redundant right around the time we just had our first boy and the pressure the stress was so immense and yeah i had to find a job and i had three months to do it i was going into these interviews and completely just being a wreck there was a couple of interviews i didn't even turn up to like i drove there and couldn't get in the door wow which is kind of embarrassing but it was beyond nerves it was physical like even if my mental like my head space was okay and I'm like yeah I'm prepared you know I know the company I know what I can bring the day would arrive and I'd just be like feeling ill mm -hmm. from like the moment I woke up and as the day progressed it would just get worse and worse mm -hmm. until the point where I was basically an hour or two out I'm thinking I'm not gonna go I can't go like this is gonna kill me like I'm, I can't handle this over-the-top panic attacks 
So you would describe that as a panic attack? Yeah, I guess the anxiety is there. The anxiety around, oh, you know, what if I've messed this up? What if I don't get a job in time? What if I can't make enough money? Constantly looking forward and just seeing negative, negative, negative with everything. Tell me about what goes on in your body. I mean, there's a classic kind of like physical outworkings of it, which like my appetite's gone. What else? Uh, not sleeping particularly well. The, the shaking, the crappy voice that's just cracking and like can't, almost can't get out of my body. Racing heartbeat. Those for me are the main ones. So you've talked about anxiety and panic attacks as if they're different things. You know, what is a panic attack and how is it different to anxiety? Well, I guess the panic attack is sort of the, it's like a crescendo, you know, of like a long drawn out scene and then it, it peaks and that's the panic attack. And that's where all of that groundwork that's been done by like the anxiety there in the background like really gets to flourish you know (laughs) such a positive light but do you know what i mean like that's kind that's kind of how i think about it it's like it really crosses over from being just in your head to being like the bulls like out of the gate and it's like it's just carnage we'll come back to michael a bit later but before we hear more about the experience of anxiety i want to look at what's going on behind the scenes To do this, I sat down with a psychologist by the name of Nettie Cullen. Not only does she know a whole lot about how our minds and brains work, she's also a therapist who's working through this stuff with people every single day. So I thought I'd start at the very beginning and ask her what anxiety is. Anxiety is a natural and necessary human response to a perceived threat or danger. Okay. So it's it's natural, it's good. It's really useful, and in fact, it's really, really necessary. It's actually quite motivating. A little bit of anxiety can help you get things done. It can help you achieve things that you might not otherwise if you, if you didn't have that little injection of motivation or yeah. energy. So why are we sitting here talking about it if it's a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes the anxiety that we might feel, or the fear that we might feel, lasts for longer and is more intense than what is actually useful for the situation. When it stops us from living the life that we're wanting to live, when it gets in the way of us achieving the things that we want to achieve, then it can become a problem. So anxiety is essentially our subjective experience of alarm, an alarm being something's wrong. Okay. And that can be quite, at one end of the spectrum, it can be quite a mild sense of unease and discomfort. Things aren't quite right through to fretting and worrying about and turning it over in our minds, trying to problem solve. And it can go on to panic and full-blown fear. So it's kind of like a sliding scale. We can have a mild and kind of natural response that doesn't take over or anything and that we can live with quite easily through to responses that That are quite debilitating. Yep. Right. Yep. Which is where things like panic come in. Yes. So the notion of state-based anxiety, which is anxiety that is triggered by a certain situation where we should feel anxious. When that anxiety endures outside of that state that originally triggered an anxiety response, then it becomes more like a trait-based anxiety, which is more debilitating. If I then carry this anxiety into different situations and interpret and experience those events and circumstances from that position of anxiety, it affects my quality of life, it affects the way that I I then live and experience the world. Hi, it's Mick here. I hope you're enjoying Are You Mental? As you can imagine, making this podcast is a pretty time-consuming pursuit, and I often get asked how people can support the podcast. So what you can do is go to GoFundMe.com and search the words, Are You Mental? That's GoFundMe.com and search, Are You Mental? Okay, on with the episode. So when people experience anxiety, what, commonly speaking, what's going on for them? Of course, everybody's experience of anxiety is unique and different. But what we do know in general, there are ways that people start thinking anxiously. 
our minds are really good at thinking and we're constantly thinking, but the thoughts will take the form of things like what if, dire predictions about the future, thoughts about whether I can cope or not, I can't bear it, worrying um, about all sorts of things, whether it be pleasing people, doing a good job, meeting expectations, yeah. about whether I'm good enough or whether I need to be perfect, all those sorts of things. And then there are the behaviours that can be another kind of response to anxiety. And a big one with anxiety is avoidance on one level or another. Whether we are avoiding social situations or avoiding places or avoiding things that we know or we've learned are likely to trigger the anxiety. Another thing that, another behaviour that um, can be a response to anxiety is fleeing, you know, escaping. Mm -hmm. that, so leaving a situation where some anxiety has been experienced. And in the problem with some of those things, the avoidance and the, the fleeing, is that they often reinforce the anxiety. So if I stay in my house all day, all month, all year, and then nothing happens to me because I've stayed in my house. Mm -hmm. It reinforces yeah. that, see, it worked. My strategy worked. Nothing's mm -hmm. happened. So I will stay in my house. And we might hold ourselves back a little bit and not engage in activities that might be a little bit risky, a bit adventurous, um, and in so doing, narrow our lives mm -hmm. so that we're not fully experiencing things in a fully engaged way. Physically, People experience a whole range of physiological reactions. So people talk about butterflies in their stomach, dizziness, sometimes even nausea. Sometimes the butterflies can get, be, get, be that intense. Obviously, muscle tension, you know, we get wound up, and that's, that's really evident in our bodies. Heart rate increases, respiration in, increases, sweaty palms. Sometimes when someone's experiencing a panic attack, they can actually have that painful and uncomfortable restriction in their chest and often talk about feeling like they can't get their breath essentially and they're going to die. It's quite a frightening experience. Mm. What about emotions? What so, emotions do people feel when they're anxious? Emotions are usually the most distressing part mm. of the response, the reaction to anxiety, not usually the most debilitating part. So our behaviours and our thoughts and those physiological reactions are often the more disruptive, but the emotions are more distressing. And it's feelings like apprehension, um, worry, dread, nervousness, mm. that sense of being overwhelmed, mm. and particularly that feeling of overwhelm in the face of feeling out of control. Panic, uneasiness, worry, fear, sometimes escalating to the point of terror. So it, it, like we spoke about before, there's this, there's a range of responses and on that continuum of unease. All the way through to All the way through terror. To, to terror. Here's Michael again, describing to me how anxiety might rear its head in a normal day for him. You know, like at work it might happen, you know, something goes wrong and then it just sets off this chain of thoughts. Okay, I've done something wrong. That's it, I failed. So... Now everyone's going to know I failed and nobody wants that around. So they're going to come for me and then I'm going to have to answer for it and I'm not going to be able to defend myself and I'm going to say something stupid. And it's like, it's just like that. It'll just keep rolling and rolling. So like, and I'm building up whole scenarios that are never going to play out, never going to happen. Next thing I know, I'm expecting HR to come and tap me on the shoulder and show me the door. Wow. And, you know, it's nothing. Nothing's happened. So it escalates no really died. fast. Yeah. That's, that's my brain. That's what being in my brain is like when I'm struggling with this stuff. Like, I have this ridiculous fear that I'm going to be toothless in a state house, like, eating beans out of a can with, like, four cats. It's just like, that's my fear. Loneliness is my fear. I mean, I think it's to do with some messed up stuff that happened to me when I was a kid. And um, it's really deep down in there. And I've spent years like thinking about it and talking to people and trying to figure it out. I mean, I just have to look at my day to day and go, OK, cool. I do have friends. Yeah, I might not text them back all the time. <laughs> what? <laughs> I really? Have, I do have friends and I do have the boys and... I've got a job. Mm, totally. But, yeah, it's just this thing I'm like, mm, that's going to turn to shit. 
So one thing I'm really curious about is, is what's going on in the mind when we experience anxiety? Okay. In the mind or the brain? Good question. Uh, what about the brain? Okay. <laughs> I love a bit of science. <laughs> love the brain. The brain's amazing. So <laughs> What I find funny about that is it's your brain saying that it's amazing yeah so. which is what makes which is what <laughs> is, is it? it the right person to ask <laughs> <laughs> it's quite narcissistic isn't it oh, the brain's amazing the brain is incredible yeah <laughs> says the brain says the brain which is that uniquely human thing to reflect on our own thinking and reflect on our own processes yeah. so if My we dog think doesn't do that no your dog doesn't do I that i don't actually have a dog so right. that's probably why <laughs> <laughs> so if we think about the brain as having essentially three parts, our most primitive part is sometimes called the lizard brain. Lizard brain, okay. And it is the first part of our brain to start growing when mm. the human being starts to form. It's the first part of the brain to have evolved. It's the most primitive. Is it called the lizard brain because it's similar to a lizard's it's brain? It's what lizards have. Oh, right. What reptiles Sorry, have. That was a dumb question, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so reptiles, sort of arguably the more primitive creatures, have a lizard brain. I know some pretty intelligent reptiles. Do you? That mm. might be a projection. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're real. <laughs> okay. it, might, it might be a delusion then. <laughs> so the lizard brain is is predominantly focused on survival and it's about threat response and it's the fastest to react it's also the slowest to change and is that where you know i've heard this whole fight flight freeze exactly. is that the lizard brain that's the lizard brain so the lizard brain that that part of our brain is the bit that controls our heart rate our breathing mm -hmm. that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and it's responsible for keeping us alive okay and if we get have a tiger running towards us, that's the lizard brain. The lizard brain kicks into action, activates our survival instincts and galvanizes us either to fight or run for our lives. If we can't fight or run for our lives, we freeze or faint. And is that why when I was really young I used to like eating flies? Because it was just the lizard brain? I hadn't developed the other? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Okay. So then we have second brain or a mammalian brain, the brain that mammals have. And Is there a, can we give it an animal? Uh, a bit more mouse, fun if we bit do. More mouse? mouse, okay. Lizard brain, mouse brain. So the mouse brain is um, responsible for regulating emotions and responding emotionally and for getting what we want, getting our desires met. And then we have a third one. Third brain being our primate brain, okay. a little monkey. Great. Much cuter. Much cuter. <laughs> well, it depends on whether you like mice and lizards. And this is the, the cortex, the part of our brain that is responsible for more complex thinking. Okay. Uh, it's where we are able to empathise, which is part of why it's involved in forming relationships okay. and forming connections. Okay. Humans have this capacity to reflect on their own thinking for self-consciousness, mm. for planning, for um, emotional reasoning, for abstract thought mm. and for empathy which is quite crucial and how does being able to have that self-awareness give us empathy because we can imagine if it's like this for me i could imagine what it might be like for you of course great that's great that's cunning isn't it it's very cunning it's very clever but when we're under threat the priority becomes survival and so those higher cortical functions that in that moment mm. may not be all that or not perceived by our primitive brain to be all that helpful for longer term survival, mm. the blood flow will be drawn into our more primitive circuitry. So when we are stressed and anxious, often people will talk about not being able to think straight. And that's purely because those parts of our brains take a back seat to the more primitive parts, the survival parts that are activated in order to get us through that particular perceived threat, danger, crisis. So when you're under threat or you feel like you're under threat, the monkey goes offline? To a large degree, yeah. So I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here, but does that mean that, for example, if you've got trait-based anxiety, that 
spills out into a lot of areas in your life, does that mean you're experiencing this, uh, the monkey going offline when you shouldn't in a way? Or, or when... When there's no need to. So with trait-based anxiety, it's like we've got an overactive alarm system. So we're carrying around with us this hypersensitive system that's constantly scanning for threats. Mm. And when we look for something, we're much more likely to see it. So we'll see things and interpret them as threatening when they may not be all that threatening. Mm. So is it fair to say that someone who experiences trait-based anxiety that really starts to impinge on their quality of life, there's a probability that they have a first and second brain that is a bit more sensitive than other people, that is more likely to perceive threat. Yes, I think that's fair to say. And so then you're thrust into this really quite primal mm. state mm. where you're, you're reacting uh, quite what, emotionally. Emotionally, right? yeah. And you can't kind of get your bearing on what's happening. It's hard to get perspective. No, right, perspective. Yeah. And in that moment, when somebody tells you, don't worry, mm. usually it doesn't have much effect. Mm. We're now going to hear from another friend of mine, Alicia, who really struggled with anxiety in her late teens and early 20s. These days, anxiety doesn't trouble her as much as it used to, so she's got some really good insight into what caused her anxiety and how she made her way through it. For me, it would be physical symptoms that I would think of when I'm thinking of anxiety. And my um, earliest experience of it would be feeling physical symptoms in my teens that it wasn't until years later I realised that it was actually anxiety. And w what physical symptoms were they? It was mainly nausea and um, just this feeling of being full all the time, not really... Like food full? Yeah, food full, like not really um, feeling hungry. And then when it got even worse, then it would go to vomiting mm. sometimes yeah. as well. Wow. Yeah. I guess I usually think of anxiety as something that happens in your mind. Yeah. It's interesting that yeah. your first experience of it was physical. Yeah. Well, I think I was just so unaware of what was going on in my mind mm. at the time. And so I think the only way that my body could get my attention was by giving me physical symptoms mm. because I was, yeah, just really not aware of what was actually going on in my head. Did you have any kind of like a rock bottom moment mm. with anxiety? A time when it was really like, holy yeah. crap, this is getting on top of me? One of my um, family members was taking me out for brunch for my birthday and I was so excited about it, but I knew that this was one of the situations where I was probably going to feel some of these physical symptoms. And up until that point, it had mainly just been nausea that I could kind of push through. But when I was at this brunch, I just felt so sick. I had to spend most of the time in the bathroom. I couldn't actually eat at all, yeah. Then I had to go home because I, I couldn't eat any of it and I just felt so sick. And I was just so gutted with myself. Like yeah. I felt really bad for the other person. And then pretty much as soon as I got home, I was fine. Yeah, it all went away. And so I knew that it wasn't a physical thing at that point, that there was something else that was going on. Yeah. My self-talk at the time often would be like, oh, like, this is so stupid, you're being so stupid, mm. you're just making this so much worse, mm. um, this is all in your head, like, you're doing this to yourself, like, just stop it, like, all that kind of stuff mm. that you would never say to somebody else, mm. but it's, yeah, just kind of acceptable to say that to yourself and mm. you don't even question that. It wasn't until I started psychotherapy and started actually being more aware of my self-talk and what was going on in my head and seeing that there was a different way of talking to yourself mm. that I had realised mm. that um, that's what had been going on in my head at the time. I guess that brings us to the whole psychotherapy thing mm. yeah. that you did. Did it help? If so, yeah. how did it help? Yeah, it was, um, it was a massive help. So I ended up seeing the psychotherapist for about two and a half years. Mm. 
Um, How often-ish? Weekly. Wow. Yeah. So it was okay. it was a lot, and it was such a long process and so much longer mm. than I thought it was mm. going to be. I'd hated it at the time, mm. most of the time, mm. and I can remember my dad <laughs> saying to me, "If you hate it." it's probably good right. like it probably means that something's working and right. you shouldn't really happily skip along to psychotherapy <laughs> like looking forward to the next hour um what were the really kind of key insights that grew out of that psychotherapy yeah. i think a lot of it was that self-talk stuff so just realizing that i did have self-talk and i was talking to myself mm. in a certain way and treating these symptoms that I was having as almost like a little girl that I could talk to. Um, and instead of trying to push it away and be so negative about it, actually kind of sitting with it and empathizing with it and being like, that's really hard to be feeling like that. Like, let's just kind of sit with this and um, not try and push it away, but actually acknowledge it. So you found it like helpful to identify almost like an inner child yeah. who comes with their quite childlike insecurities yeah. and fears. Yeah, because it's so much easier to be kinder to other people. Mm. Mm. And so if I could kind of, um, yeah, imagine that it was like a friend mm. or a little kid that I was talking to, I'd say very different things to what I would normally say to myself in my head. So that's definitely what made the most difference for me. Wow. Yeah. We'll come back to Alicia in a moment. But now that you've met everyone in this episode, uh, I'm just going to start cutting from one to the other. So just try to keep up. If I wanted the best for myself, I would make the best choices at all times. And I sometimes think I don't because I don't think I deserve the good that's going to come from those good choices which is why I think it's a self-love thing mm. so a big part of you feels like you don't deserve these good things yeah and I do that in other areas of my life it's kind of weird like I remember one morning waking up and I opened my drawer to put some underwear on and at the top of the pile there's like these two pieces of underwear and there's like the one really nice, comfortable pair that I love wearing. <laughs> We've all got that pair. And then there's like another like pair that I don't think is that comfortable. And like, I chose the shitty one. <laughs> like, that is so weird. Why? Because I don't think that I deserved the good one. You know, like that's something wrong with me. Like I, Like, I don't deserve to feel good. And it is, I mean... We're having a laugh about it because it's about undies. But as a friend, it's sad to hear that too because I want you to see the value that I see in you. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, like plenty of times I will choose the good undies, <laughs> but it's just weird to think that like <laughs> even on those days, like I would choose the shitty one. Like no one <laughs> wants that. There may be no clear answer to this, but what causes someone to have trait-based anxiety that really starts to impinge on their mm. quality of life. Yeah. No, you're right. There isn't a very clean answer to that question. And because it is complex, um, every experience that we have, we don't approach it with a clean blank slate. We, we bring with us into every new experience all our past experiences mm. and we make associations, we make connections. And so we build on experiences. And that's part of the richness of humanity. But where it can cause us some problems is that we may then start building on a rocky platform. So we take some past experiences and not just maybe the visceral experience of it, but the meaning that we've ascribed to it. And we carry that into our next experiences. And if, if we have a certain number of experiences that are associated, we can then build a sense of ourselves, a sense of the world as perhaps a threatening place mm. or of ourselves as not able to cope. It starts becoming woven in, in a way, to our how we perceive ourselves, how we experience ourselves, and therefore how we relate with the world. So things that have happened 
to us in the past and the feelings, often quite strong probably, feelings that we've had when those things happened, we carry them with us in ways we might not even be aware of. Yes, we carry them implicitly. And they can, in a funny way, accumulate. Well, they're, yeah, they're all stored. We, we, we never unlearn those things. Mm. We learn them, we never unlearn them. So when a new experience that I encounter is similar enough to the past one, mm. I'll pull all sorts of aspects of that past experience into the new experience. Mm. So when we experience something that's got some kind of similarity mm. to something that caused a big feeling in mm. the past, we might go straight back to that feeling. Yes. That feeling gets triggered and brought into the new experience. But we might be completely oblivious that it's linked to it at all. Absolutely. Wow. I guess that begs the question, what would cause someone to have a particularly sensitive alarm system? Um, there's an undeniable genetic element to anxiety. Just like, you know, one person might tend to be more ticklish than another person. Yeah. But that's only a piece of the picture. Mm. It's never as simple as, is it your genes or is it your environment? Because mm. our genes and environment are continually responding and reacting to each other. Mm. The experiences that we have have big impact on how we are in the world. Mm. So if the world has been a pretty safe, secure place for you, you're likely to go into the world, even if you're born with a, with a slightly sensitive alarm system, you're going to go into the world believing that it's not too bad and things are going to generally go your way and it's going to be okay and you'll get through this. Right? But if your experience has been things are tough, you never know who's going to get mad at you or whether things are going to fail or what's going to happen or, or whatever, that then shapes how you go into the world and how you respond to future situations. So it's almost like if you're really quite an allergic person but you live in a city with no kind mm. of flowers or anything, you might be fine. Whereas if you're not so allergic but you're brought up in a hay barn, yes. you could <laughs> yes. experience allergies. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's an interesting way of putting it. But also what can happen is if you're brought up in a hay barn, it can make you even more sensitive or it can change the way that, that predisposition is expressed as well. Mm. So it's, it's quite, mm. it's quite complex, complex wow. and interwoven. Wow. Yeah. You mentioned that your anxiety kind of had some roots in some childhood stuff. Yeah. Did you want to talk about what that is? Yeah, it was interesting because at the time I was um, studying to be a midwife and we'd just been um, learning about all the attachment theories and yeah. stuff like that. And You're like, uh-oh, yeah. I hate it when your textbook <laughs> points I a know. finger at you. Yeah, that's right. Because I, I always knew that my mum had had to go back to work when I was six weeks old. Mm. And when I was kind of reading about all that attachment stuff, I was like, oh man, like I wonder if that's affected me at all because that must have been pretty hard. Um, like I had different nannies kind of growing up and I would often go to dad, um, with dad to uni with him and we talked a little bit about that in my psychotherapy and um, definitely think there were some correlations from that. Yeah, we from did. not necessarily having that high as it could be level of bonding yeah. time with yeah yeah that's right I didn't really feel that like strong attachment and I was really close with dad and when he'd have to travel for work I would sometimes have like complete meltdowns with him leaving yeah. and just like literally cling to him yeah. and not want him to go mm that was definitely anxiety back then as a child. I guess the one thing that I'm particularly passionate about in my work with people is their relationship, that the, the relationship forms the core of our being. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that, that need to be connected and loved and secure and the fear of being abandoned and left, the idea that that forms the core of anxiety seems really important to me. So how does being abandoned result in anxiety? Well, being abandoned is a separation, actually. Separation is, for humans, extraordinarily threatening. Mm. 
because we need other humans, we need relationship, we need it for survival. Mm. We're dependent on a relationship for our very existence. Mm. But then we also need that emotional attachment and connection for the development of who we are. Mm. And without that, there's a sense of on one level, primitive level, I die, but on another level, I don't exist if I don't have a relationship or a, a context within which to exist. So when that is threatened on one level or another, and it might be that it's threatened in terms of a physical abandonment, mm. but there are other ways that we get rejected and abandoned, and it's and it can be things like just not being good enough, not feeling like I've met expectations and therefore I'm not getting the approval, mm. which then threatens the attachment. And I, I, I get anxious when I feel like something is going to wreak havoc with that relationship that I need for my security and safety. So when we fear not having that safe, secure attachment, yeah. we go into this anxious state. It, it triggers anxiety. When we fear not having it or losing it or it being withdrawn, Mm. It's anxiety provoking and it gets, it gets quite interesting when you think about how we internalise those attachment dynamics and if we've had a secure attachment in our external world, say between the self and the caregiver, mm. then I can internalise that and I can hold myself as I felt held. So if, if I was worthy of being held in that way by them then I believe my, I can then believe myself worthy and hold myself that way. Then I don't need the same validation mm. externally because I've taken it in and internalised it. It's become part of how I then experience myself, which is a really safe and secure place to be. So we've talked mainly about what causes someone to be anxious, but I wanted to make sure um, that I asked you, how might we go about helping someone loosen the grip that anxiety has on them? That's a big question. Here we are. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Asking the big questions. So, becoming aware, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of the process is about unpacking those experiences and becoming aware of how they have impacted on us, mm. how we've taken them in, how they've become part of our beings. And as we become aware, those implicit memories become more explicit. We're more then able to discriminate between the then and there and the here and now. Right, because in that threatened state, we go back to the place as if it's happening right now. Yes. And we need to pull, we need to pull past experiences apart from our present reality. I like to think of it as discriminating, being able to, to recognise that what's happening now is different to what was happening then. Right. Great. And some of those, those experiences that we've taken in that we're not necessarily conscious of, mm. in some ways they can be sitting there in a sort of like a holding space in our brain, unprocessed. Mm. As we process them, as we make sense of them, as we develop our insight and awareness around them, then we can make those discriminations and say that was there and then. And this is here and now and, and it's not the same and thing. It's not the same. So are we kind of feeding the monkey in a way? Giving the monkey a bit more ability to stay in the game? Well, that's Three. an interesting way of putting it. I think you'll find it's an amazing way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I mean, the monkey, the monkey goes offline sometimes and in, in an unhelpful way. And we want to keep... Am I right in saying well, we yeah, want to kind of keep We're drawing the monkey, the monkey back in. Right. We're drawing the monkey back in. And some nuts or something. Yeah, or something. Um, we're, we're engaging mm. that capacity mm. in us to be able to have those reflections, to do that processing mm. and to mm. work through both our past experiences and our present experience and then anticipate our future experiences mm. so that when those situations happen again you're more able to cope with them mm. and not get lost in them. So you mentioned that processing past experiences which make up this kind of, you know, you said that 
past experiences, past emotions get woven into us yeah. and we carry them with us yeah. and that it's use- useful to process them and un- unpack them. Yeah. How do we do that? Wow. We can do that all sorts of ways. Of course, how I like to do it was through counselling and therapy. Right. But that's, that's certainly not the only way. The journey or the process is just to know ourselves more deeply. Mm-hmm. People do that through art and creative pursuits. They do that through self-examination and um, journaling and, mm. and in other relationships. So obviously seeing a professional is a really helpful way to go about that. I like to think so. <laughs> You'd hope so. <laughs> what might that look like in the room with a counsellor or psychologist? What might unpacking that stuff look like? Mm. From my point of view, at least, the main thing is about the relationship and in a safe space for us to to be vulnerable and to know ourselves more deeply. And so first and foremost is a feeling of trust and safety because remembering when we don't feel safe, the lizard brain takes the driver's seat and we don't feel safe. It's very difficult to be able to see things from a different point of view. And it doesn't have to be a therapeutic relationship uh, with a therapist, but relationships are a um, wonderful treatment for anxiety. Mm. Feeling connected, mm. feeling held, held in mind, held by another person mm. is enormously comforting. But then, then a space to unpack from one perspective or another, and therapists will take lots of different perspectives, but from one perspective or another, unpack what's happening and making sense of what's happening. Mm. And you might make sense of it from a cognitive point of view, you might make sense of it um, from a neurobiological point of view, you might make sense of it from a more emotional point of view, but one way or another, making sense of what's happening and engaging that capacity to reflect, to make sense, make meaning, and make new meaning from past experiences. In the last year or so, I've really tried to open up a bit more to the people around me. And I did actually end up having a panic attack this year. And this time, one of the first things that I did was call a friend um, when I was in the middle of that. And that was a friend who I knew would understand and that was the best thing I could have done and so now I'm really starting to realise how great it is to be able to open up to the other people around you when you are going through things like that. You just have to choose them wisely um, and make sure that it's someone who is going to be empathetic and that you are going to feel understood um, and listened to. And what effect do you think that had on your well-being doing that? I think one of the main things from doing that is that you can actually feel known by other people. When there's certain parts of yourself or what you're going through that you're not sharing with anybody, it kind of got to the point sometimes where I was like, I don't know if like anyone actually really truly knows me because there's all these little bits that I'm not fully telling other people and hiding from other people. So for me, feeling fully known by some people makes a big difference to just how I feel about myself. When people are experiencing anxiety, do you know of tools that seem to help people when they're experiencing it? Yes. One of the single most valuable things to do is breathing. Mm-hmm. So when we are, when that fight, flight or freeze mechanism kicks in, our heart rate elevates, our breathing elevates, and all the, our extremities tingle because we're getting ready to fight for our lives or run for the hills. And we can't regulate our heart rate, we can't regulate our perspiration, but we can regulate our breathing. Mm. Not in an instant, mm. right? But, but we can bring our attention to our breath and actively slow it down. And what that does is that it activates another part of our nervous system that brings us back into calm. And once that is settled, then you can use other techniques like reflecting on the thoughts and saying, hold on a second, what am I thinking? What am I fearing? Is that realistic? Is that likely? Mm -hmm. And even if it does happen, 
would that be the end of the world? So you can start using some rational tools mm. um, to address the anxiety from the top down. And bringing ourselves back into connection with our bodies, bringing ourselves back into connection with our sensory experience can be a very mm. calming and grounding mm. process, which if you think about being grounded in the here and now, it's, it's harder to get lost in the there and then when you've got your feet planted on the here and now. Interesting. And is that why I've heard things like grounding techniques, like feeling the weight of your yes. of your body on the seat and yes. your feet on the ground. The feet on the ground. And naming things you're seeing. Yes. Bringing you into the present, bringing you into the here and now. Because very often when we're anxious, our minds are somewhere else. Mm. What we're experiencing is something from a different time, a different place, different relationship, and we're not connected with the present moment, we're not connected with ourselves. And because this all is caused by a very sensitive, very complex alarm system, the alarm system is, is, is there to say, you're in danger. Yes. Yeah. So I assume that looking around and at the facts of, oh, I'm in this um, slightly grungy basement in Auckland, New Zealand, but being able to name the room you're in and feel the seat you're in is like, yeah. oh, actually, I, I'm not in danger. That's right. Yep. That's right. One of the things I've only recently started doing, which is really helpful, is just like looking at textures. Oh. Seems really weird. Like this curtain or something? Yeah. Like if I'm feeling like my thoughts are getting too carried away, mm. I'll just look at something. Carpet is one. Mm. I'll look at it and I'll look real like, <laughs> sounds so, like I sound like a mental person. But I'll look at the texture and I'll be like, huh. Carpet's pretty nice, and you know that part over there's a little bit more worn than this mm. bit. It's, there's a stain over there, and like that just seems to bring me in wow. nicely. Grounding yourself physically and actually mm. feeling yourself sitting on your car seat mm. and your feet on the floor, which is trying to get your body and your mind to realize that no actually I'm here I'm in a car I'm in Auckland and it's kind of like bringing yourself back to the present and being aware of where you are at the time which is safe. I can remember a psychotherapist talking to me before about when um, I feel myself feeling like I'm going to faint or have a panic attack to start like labeling the stuff around you and really focusing on the stuff around you and so I did that while I was driving and I was kind of just like you know, trees, like blue mm. car, and just mm. kind of bringing myself mm. back to that present. And then within about like 10 seconds, it had, wow. it had gone. In that journey, did you develop or take on any exercises or practices that mm. have helped in any way? Yeah, well, like the last few years, I have been doing more meditation. Yep. It'll literally be for like 10, 15 minutes in the morning. That's it. Like I don't sit there for an hour or two. Um, Levitating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that helps me really connect with my body mm. and actually notice what I'm feeling in my body rather than trying to push it away and ignore it. And what would be, out of interest, what's your go-to way of meditating? I use Headspace. Okay. Yeah, I find that You mean so our helpful. sponsor? No, <laughs> yeah, I'm joking. That's right. <laughs> it could be. They might be by the time Maybe. people are listening to them. <laughs> um, it's like really easy guided but not too guided you can choose different topics and stuff so mm. um and he's got that great british voice he's got a great voice <laughs> to listen to yeah do you secretly soothing. fancy the headspace guy yeah, maybe <laughs> <laughs> what would you um say to other people struggling with anxiety first of all i think if anyone is struggling with anxiety and they've they've made that crucial step of actually like acknowledging that one they're struggling with something and two that it is specifically anxiety that's mm. great that's sort of the hardest part like if you're just not even aware that mm. that's like a hindrance to you or could change that's more worrying and more upsetting and more sad in a way mm. if you're struggling with anxiety to the point where it's actually affecting your performance in everyday life or it's affecting your ability to do your job or maintain a relationship or just be happy with you as a person. Mm. You need to talk to some, a professional person. I'm 100% behind that. 
the biggest thing that helped me was seeing a psychotherapist. Mm. And do you mean a psychotherapist as opposed to a counsellor or psychologist? No, I think any mental health mm. professional. They're quite different and different ones work for different people. And, and you can shop around a yeah, little. You don't you have can. to like... Totally. Keep going to the first yeah. one if they don't feel like the right fit. Totally. Don't just go and see one and then decide that it's not for you and write it off. Mm-hmm. Like it's really important to get recommendations and find one that you feel like you can trust and mm-hmm. it's going to be really helpful for you. And just like self-care is so important mm-hmm. as well. Like it's amazing how much difference just like getting good sleep and Mm. eating well Mm. and getting some fresh air can make and often those are the last things that you feel like doing when you're not feeling like yourself or feeling well Mm. and so sometimes you really just need someone to kind of force you to do that at the beginning Mm. like for a week or so like I remember one of my friends being like right I know you don't feel like this but tomorrow we're going for a walk Mm. like we just have to do that and once you actually go out and do that and get some fresh air you're like oh this actually makes me feel so much better Mm. but sometimes yeah you really do need someone just to kind of push you into Mm. doing some of those basic self-care things. So if someone's listening to this now and maybe they're realizing for the first time that what they're struggling with is in fact anxiety what would you want to say to them? People will have different reactions to recognising that they're anxious. So for one person, it might be a relief to discover that what they're going through is part of a natural human reaction and it can be quite empowering. Other times, and here's one of the big kind of messy pieces of anxiety, is that sometimes we get anxious about being anxious. Mm. Sometimes we get depressed about being anxious. Mm. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed by the anxiety and it can become quite debilitating on another level Mm. so probably what I would want to say to somebody in that sort of situation is don't worry it's okay this is something that can be addressed one step at a time Mm. there are tools there are strategies there are ways of working through this and it can be worked through it can be worked through absolutely it can be worked through and finally are you mental I'm definitely mental yeah (laughs) 100%. 100%. Me too, bro, me too. Oh, you're definitely mental. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks for listening to episode one of Are You Mental? If this has resonated with you and you think that anxiety is restricting your life in some way, then I encourage you to talk with someone you trust about it. I also really recommend speaking to a counsellor or therapist. It's a great way not only to get it off your chest, but to also start to gain insight into what might be going on. You can also find some good resources on our website, areyoumental.com. And speaking of the website, I'd like to say a big thank you to Simon Wright in London, who owned the web address areyoumental.com, but generously gave it to us because he likes what we're doing. Stay tuned for the next episode, and until then, have a mental week.